Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Magic and the Book of Mormon. Now, when I talk about magic, as I'm going to be using it tonight, and as I use it in the title to tonight's podcast, I'm not talking about folk magic or supernatural magic or even occult magic, the kinds of magic that D. Michael Quinn writes about in his famous book, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. No, I'm going to use the term magic as it is used by magicians, those who perform tricks for entertainment purposes. Because I was a magician since the age of 10. And I don't do a lot of magic anymore, but I guess once a magician, always a magician. It's kind of like being a bishop. Once a bishop, always a bishop. And I learned a great deal about magic when I was a kid. And not only how to do magic tricks, but also a lot of the theory behind magic and the principles of magic and what it is you need to do to effectively fool an audience, to trick them, to make them think they're seeing one thing which is magical when actually what is happening is very normal, very ordinary, very unmagical. That's the whole point of doing magic. As I say, I started my interest in magic when I was 10 years old and I got a book through Scholastic Books in fourth grade called Spooky Magic. There were a number of tricks in there. I loved them. I learned them. I astonished my friends and family. And I continued my interest in magic in getting more books after that, checking books out of the library, learning additional tricks, and as I say, learning more about the theory behind magic as I went along. I segued somewhat out of my interest in magic around 1976 when I started studying dance, but magic was never really that far from me. I attempted to do a few tricks when I was in Japan on my mission, a few bits of street magic with the idea that maybe that would get people more interested in hearing our message than in approaching them and saying, would you like to hear a tokubetsu namaseiji about Joseph Smith? By the way, tokubetsu namaseiji would be Japanese for special message. And it was because I was engaged in this that I recall now that that's why I had a deck of cards, playing cards, at the missionary apartment in Sakai and was able to do that trick that I described earlier in another podcast for Elder Green, the Green Bean Missionary. Remember him? in our apartment there and the other two missionaries. A magic trick that was absolutely fantastic, amazing, that involved playing cards, and a trick that unfortunately Elder Green was not able to replicate the following evening, much to the amusement of all those present. But I remember having a discussion with my mission president about my using playing cards to do a few magic tricks to try and get people interested enough to hear the gospel. And I wanted to talk with him about it because I knew, of course, like every good Mormon did at the time, that Mormons were not supposed to use playing cards. They were not supposed to use face cards because not only were face cards of the devil, but that they could also lead to sins such as gambling. And on top of that, they were just a colossal waste of time. And when I approached my mission president about it in a meeting when I was having an interview, a regularly scheduled interview, at the mission home, he seemed open to the idea, but he came back with the standard response about playing cards being a waste of time. And then he compared it to the game of chess, which is, of course, a very sophisticated game and it exercises the mind. Well, I had been raised as a kid by my parents who loved playing bridge and they taught all of their boys how to play bridge. So, of course, I mentioned that Bridge was a card game played with face cards, and that seemed to be something that exercised the mind, too, that required a great deal of intelligence. And as soon as I said that, to my mission president's credit, he had to agree and then became a lot more ambivalent about his argument regarding face cards being just a waste of time. I appreciate that about that mission president. This was not my first mission president. This was my second mission president. 
and I can't remember his name. I apologize for that. He was a Nisei. He was a Japanese individual with Japanese last name. He had a successful insurance company, I think, in Utah before he was called to be a mission president, and he was not dogmatic about the issue. He was open to discussing it, even with me, a lowly missionary, and even open to changing his mind on the subject during the course of our discussion. I appreciate him for that, and I do so more in retrospect than I did at the time, but this accounts for how it was that there was a deck of playing cards in the missionary apartment in Sakai, Japan, and why I could perform that trick for Elder Green. Well, I continued on with magic in the 1980s, and I suppose the highlight of my magic career was performing a big show for a New Year's Eve dance at the Stakes Center on the stage of the Cultural Hall at the Stakes Center in Austin, Texas. I can't remember what year it was. It was sometime in the 1980s. It was definitely on a New Year's Eve, and that place was crammed with youth because it was a big multi-regional New Year's Eve dance that was being held there. And I suppose the highlight of the entire show was when I took an arm guillotine. It was a special piece of magic apparatus that I had gotten somewhere along the way. And in front of the entire audience, I called up the stake president's wife and cut her hand off, which then fell visibly into a basket that was placed in front of the arm guillotine, much to the shock and amazement of everyone present. And of course, don't worry, I put it back. I put her hand back before she left the stage. She was a great sport about this. It was actually something where I had to talk with her beforehand and have a little bit of preparation with her about what she would do and how this magic trick would go before I called her at random from the audience when I asked for volunteers. But there are some things that I learned about magic that have application to the Book of Mormon. And when I'm talking about the Book of Mormon tonight, I'm talking specifically about the translation of the Book of Mormon. I think it's pretty clear by now that many different people can see many different things when they look at the Book of Mormon. And frequently, what they see in the Book of Mormon depends a lot on how it is that they're looking at the Book of Mormon and what background and what experience and what training they have that they bring to bear on the Book of Mormon itself. I gave a three-part podcast here a few weeks ago. By the way, today is Friday, May 1st, 2020. I am at the end of my sixth week of daily podcasts, every weekday presenting a new podcast of Radio Free Mormon. For those of you who are sheltering at home, trying to do my bit to help my listeners weather this coronavirus pandemic. But as I say, different people with different backgrounds can see different things in the Book of Mormon. And a few weeks ago, I gave a three-part podcast showing what I saw in the text of 3 Nephi, specifically relating to Jesus's ministry there as recorded in 3 Nephi chapters 11 through 27. And what I brought there was some experience and some expertise and some training that I have as a lawyer in looking at texts and applying it to those chapters and I was able by doing that to see things that I would not have seen before and that other people might not see without the same kind of training and background. In a similar way, I also mentioned in a recent podcast that Charles Harrell, based on his training and background, was able to look at the Book of Mormon and see playing out there arguments and debates about religious controversies that were current in Joseph Smith's day and that, in fact, characters in the Book of Mormon end up using the very same arguments that were being used by different churches in Joseph Smith's day in order to support different understandings of the scriptures. So I would not have been able to see that just reading the Book of Mormon, but Charles Harrell could because he had the background. He had done the research. He brought those tools and that experience to bear on his reading of the text. Once again, this idea of being able to see different things in the Book of Mormon, depending upon your background and what you're bringing to the table. Another example would be John Welch, 
who is a lawyer. And he looked at the Book of Mormon at one time as a lawyer, and as a result, he ended up writing a book called Legal Cases in the Book of Mormon because he saw a lot of legal cases going on. And based on his background, he was able to fill up an entire book with that type of explication of the text. In another book that John Welch had written earlier, he looked at the Sermon on the Mount in 3rd Nephi as a temple text. That's his book, The Sermon at the Temple and the Sermon on the Mount, where he looks at the sermon that's given there as a temple text, and with his background, of course, as being not only a lawyer, but also a faithful Mormon who's been to the temple and experienced repeatedly the temple endowment, being intimately acquainted with what goes on there. He was able to see in this text elements that he associated with the temple. So he read the Sermon on the Mount as a temple text. Well, what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to look at the Book of Mormon and specifically the translation process, not as a lawyer, not as a textual exegete, not as a historian, but simply as a magician. Because when I bring my training and my background and my understanding, which I've accumulated really over the past 50 years off and on, in magic, and I bring that to bear on what we know about the translation process of the Book of Mormon, all of a sudden, I start seeing new things that I had never seen before. Now, it might be a surprise to you, and it is a bit of a surprise to me, that I've never done this before, except within the past couple of months. And as I've started to do this, a few things came to my mind that seemed to answer certain questions, at least from this point of view, from a magician's point of view. And I want to share those with you tonight. First off, as a magician, there are two different kinds of tricks. There is one kind of trick that you can do with ordinary objects, whether it's a deck of playing cards, whether it's a coin, whether it's something else that's found around the house, whether it's a handkerchief, and you can just borrow it from somebody and there's no special preparation about it and you do a magic trick with absolutely ordinary objects. But then again, there's another part of magic, another huge area of magic that involves props, that involves things that are specially made in order to produce a magical effect. And one of those things might be a production box, for example. There's all sorts of different methods of having production boxes or boxes or containers that are shown to be empty. And then magically you start producing all sorts of silks and scarves and garlands and maybe even doves or rabbits out of this box that was previously shown to be empty and that's the magical effect. Well, those can do lots of great magic tricks and magic illusions. The problem is, is that you can never let the audience actually examine what it is that you're using, the magic box, the piece of apparatus, because if the audience ever actually got their hands on it and started looking at it, then they would immediately be able to see what the trick was, because it's obvious once you get your hands on it and are able to look at it, more than just those parts of the apparatus that the magician shows you. And I will tell you that being a kid and performing magic shows and magic tricks for my friends who are of the same age, I have had the experience, like pretty much every other magician, of using some kind of prop, some kind of gimmicked prop to do a magic trick and then having a member of the audience grab it away from you when you're not looking or even grab it right out of your hands and start looking at it and immediately they figure out what the trick is, what the gimmick is, how the trick was done, much to my chagrin and much to the laughter of the audience. That's the kind of laughter you don't want to hear as a magician. People laughing at you because they figured out how the trick was done. So it is very important for a magician when they're using something that has a gimmick to it that is not exactly what it appears to be to keep that prop away from the hands of the audience to make it so that the audience cannot see it or God forbid get a hold of it and actually start physically examining it. And of course when I think about this basic principle of magic I have to think about the steps that Joseph Smith took to keep anybody from seeing 
the gold plates, at least during the translation process. After the translation process is over, there's the incident with the three witnesses and the incident with the eight witnesses, and those have their own problems. But I do have to note parenthetically that in both of those instances, the circumstances and the environment and the staging, if I can use the word, of those witness viewings were carefully controlled by Joseph Smith. But dealing with the plates during the process of translating the Book of Mormon, we know now, number one, that Joseph Smith never looked at the plates while he was translating the Book of Mormon. The plates may have been hidden in a barn while he was translating the Book of Mormon with his face in a hat, or they may have been hidden in a log during that time period. Or Emma Smith even says that the plates were in plain sight on the table while Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon with his face in the hat and while she was writing down what it was that he was dictating. Of course, in the very same sentence, Emma says that the plates were in plain sight, but they were wrapped in a cloth so that she could not actually see them. Well, looking at this as a magician, this immediately raises the question, why are the gold plates wrapped in a cloth? Why does Joseph Smith take such pains to make sure that nobody can see these gold plates? And the answer from a magician's point of view is obvious because if somebody could see the gold plates that are wrapped in the cloth, they would see that they weren't really the gold plates that were wrapped in a cloth. They were not really what Joseph Smith was describing them to be and being able to see them would immediately tell anybody who's looking at them what the gimmick is, what the trick is. So that's a pretty obvious example of taking the magical method and applying it to the translation of the Book of Mormon. Now, Joseph Smith also appears to have taken additional steps to keep people from looking at the seer stone, or at least placing the seer stone in the hat and looking into the hat. Or in other words, trying to replicate Joseph Smith's method of translation by putting his face over the hat and looking at the seer stone. We have a number of different witnesses who obviously saw the stone. There was nothing apparently remarkable about the stone, and they saw it when it was out of the hat, but nobody could look at the seer stone when it was inside the top hat that Joseph Smith used to dictate the Book of Mormon. And I recall that there was one witness who left a statement to that effect. And I was searching for it this morning. I couldn't find it. But I did find in the Book of Mormon this very same idea that there is a danger associated with looking into the interpreters if you are not commanded of God, which in Joseph Smith's day would mean if you didn't receive a revelation through Joseph Smith that permitted you to do that, then you were forbidden to do it. And the penalty, if you did so, was death. So it was no small thing. This is a big warning. This is a big penalty. And we can find that in Mosiah chapter 8 and verse 13. This is where Ammon is talking to the people of Limhi. He learns about the 24 Jaredite plates, which they had discovered and brought back with them. And he is asked by Limhi if Ammon knows of anybody who could possibly translate the strange writing that are on these 24 Jaredite plates. And this is the response that Ammon gives to him in verse 13, because Ammon does know somebody. Now Ammon said unto him, I can assuredly tell thee, O king, of a man that can translate the records, for he has wherewith that he can look and translate all records that are of ancient date. And it is a gift from God. And the things are called interpreters. So these are the same kinds of things, if not indeed the exact same things, that Joseph Smith claims to have by which he can translate the gold plates into the text of the Book of Mormon. But the verse goes on with a warning. And the things are called interpreters. And no man can look in them except he be commanded, lest he should look for that he ought not, and he should perish. 
Dun, dun, dun. So there's these wonderful things called interpreters, and there's a guy that Ammon knows who's kind of like Joseph Smith who can look into the interpreters and translate ancient texts that are written on plates. But there's a warning that goes along with it that if somebody looks into these interpreters and is not commanded of God to do so, then he is going to die probably right on the spot. And this warning is found not only in the Book of Mormon, but once again, I am certain that I've read at least one witness statement, one of the three witnesses who recounted a similar injunction from Joseph Smith, not to look at the seer stones in the hat apparently, otherwise they would perish. Okay, now I'm breaking back into the podcast. I went and took a break from recording and found the quotation that I was talking about from one of the witnesses. And in fact, I found not one, but two quotations, two quotes, from Book of Mormon witnesses and scribes along these same lines. The first one comes from Oliver Cowdery, who was interviewed by Josiah Jones in 1830. So this is pretty early on. A summary of the interview was recorded in an 1831 letter. In that letter, Josiah Jones reports what he learned from Cowdery. So here's the statement. He, Cowdery, stated that Smith looked into or through the transparent stones to translate what was on the plates. I then asked him if he had ever looked through the stones to see what he could see in them. His reply was that he was not permitted to look into them. I asked him who debarred him from looking into them. He remained some time in silence, then said that he had so much confidence in his friend Smith, who told him that he must not look into them, that he did not presume to do so, lest he should tempt God and be struck dead." Now, this is the quotation that I was trying to think of, that I was trying to find, and that I finally did. Here is Oliver Cowdery, the principal scribe of the Book of Mormon, who says that he did not dare try and look through the seer stones himself because he was told by Joseph Smith that he should not, and apparently that if he did, he would be struck dead on the spot. The next quote comes from Martin Harris, who was interviewed by an individual named John A. Clark. And this is what Martin Harris said about the warning he received. And there, what Martin Harris says is that during his time acting as scribe for Joseph Smith during the translation of the 116 pages, Harris was told that it would arouse the most terrible divine displeasure if he should attempt to draw near the sacred chest or look at Smith while engaged in the work of deciphering the mysterious characters. So here we have Oliver concerned that if he tried to look through the stones, he would tempt God and be struck dead. And now we have Martin Harris saying that he was told that if he even looked at Joseph Smith while he was translating, that it would arouse the most terrible divine displeasure. So once again, we see that the proscription against looking at Joseph Smith while he's translating or looking at the seer stone doesn't appear to apply to the seer stone when it's not in the hat. Plenty of people saw the seer stone when it was outside the hat. What it appears to be is a warning against trying to use the seer stone in the same way that Joseph Smith was using the seer stone, i.e. to translate, i.e. to put it into the hat and then to put his face over the hat to begin to attempt the divine translation. So as a magician, you look at this and you say, okay, obviously Joseph Smith is taking pains to make sure that nobody takes a look at the seer stone, at least when it's in the hat, because then they will perish. He, he's taking steps to make sure that nobody gets a look or nobody handles the prop, because if they do, once again, from a magician's point of view, if they do, they will immediately figure out what the gimmick is. Now, I'm not here to tell you exactly what the gimmick was that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon, to produce the Book of Mormon in this unusual method. All I'm doing is I am applying principles that I learned as a magician to the problem and seeing what I can figure out 
by so doing. Let me explain this point a little bit further by talking to you about trick decks. Now there's different ways of doing card tricks. Most card tricks you can do with a regular deck of cards, but there's another set of card tricks that you have to have a special deck. It's a trick deck. It's a gimmicked deck. And there are different kinds of these trick decks out there. There's a Svengali deck, there's a stripper deck, there's a blank deck, there's an invisible deck. There's all sorts of trick decks out there. The problem with the trick deck is that you cannot let the audience examine them because then they'll figure out, hey, this is a trick deck. This isn't really magic. On the other hand, if you're using a regular deck of cards, then the audience can examine them at any point they want because guess what? They're not trick. There's nothing to discover by examining the cards. The magic is happening somewhere other than in the cards. So what you have to do as a magician, if you're using a trick deck, you have to prevent the audience in any way possible from actually examining or holding or looking through the trick deck because then they would discover the secret. In the same way, what I see Joseph Smith doing here as a magician is preventing his audience from looking through the seer stones or apparently looking at the seer stones when they're in the hat. Outside the hat's okay, but inside the hat, no dice, penalty of death, wrath of God kind of stuff. And that is a tell to me as a magician that Joseph Smith cannot allow people to look at the hat or the stone in the hat because if they did, they would be able to find out what the gimmick is and how it is that Joseph Smith is doing the trick, just like a trick deck. Now, I can't necessarily tell you exactly what the trick is in a trick deck, but if I'm watching a magician and he's not going to let the audience look at the cards, then I know pretty surely, yeah, he's using a trick deck. Because if he's not using a trick deck, every magician is going to let the audience look at the cards. I'm just saying, I've been one for 50 years. I know how it's done. Which brings us to the next obvious fact, which we'll go into a little bit more depth here in a few minutes, which is that if the stone can be seen outside the hat, and that's not a problem, and it's only when the stone is inside the hat that you can't look at it, then it tells me that the magic and the gimmick is not with the stone. The magic and the gimmick is with the hat. That's where the trick is. That's where the secret is. That's what people have to be kept away from. Okay, so now I want to talk about another aspect of magic. And this aspect of magic is probably a little bit more nuanced. And I want to explain it to you. First off, let me go back to when I was a young teenager. I might have been 13 years old. It's the summertime. My family's going down to visit family in Southern California. My Aunt Joyce is married to a guy and his name is Van. That's my Uncle Van. And he used to do magic when he was a kid. He was thrilled to find out that I had an interest in magic and he showed me some really neat tricks and how to do them. And one of the tricks that he showed me early on was the famous trick. It's called the cut and restored rope trick. And it's a very simple trick and it doesn't take any preparation. All you need is a length of rope, maybe two feet long and a pair of scissors. And the effect is this, is that you take this rope, you cut it in the middle, you tie the two ends together into a knot so that then you can show that you have a length of rope with a knot in the middle. You then wrap that piece of rope around your hand. You then reach into your pocket to get the woofle dust. Okay, now hang on a second. You have to reach in your pocket to get the woofle dust. You bring out your hand with nothing in it, of course. There's no real woofle dust. You just sort of sprinkle it over your hand. The other hand that has the rope wrapped around it, and then you unwrap the rope, and lo and behold, it is restored. It is whole again. It's not tied together. It's one piece of rope. Okay, now the principle here is that actually when you wrap the rope up in your hand, I'm not going to tell you how to do the trick, okay, because I am still a magician. I do still have standards. I do take my oaths of secrecy seriously, and nobody has oaths of secrecy like magicians, unless maybe it's Mormons. But anyway, when you wrap the rope up in your hand, you end up with something in your right hand. The rope is wrapped around your left. You have something in your right hand, and actually, it's the knot. But 
You have to get rid of that knot before you reveal the trick. So you have to have an excuse for putting your hand in your pocket to drop the knot in your pocket. And the excuse that you have for putting your hand in your pocket so you can get rid of the knot is that you are actually reaching into your pocket not to drop something off, but to pick something up. And what you're picking up is the woofle dust. So you drop the knot off in your pocket, you bring out the woofle dust, and then you sprinkle it over your hand, you unwrap the rope, lo and behold, it's restored, and now you're clean. And what that means in magic parlance is that there's nothing left in your hands or visible that the audience can see that will give away how you did the trick. And you can hand the rope out, it can be examined, and everybody is astonished, at least if you do it right, which every now and again, I actually did. So what I want to focus on here is this principle of doing something for one reason, one ostensible reason, one reason that you explain to the audience, which is I'm going to reach into my pocket and get some woofle dust and sprinkle it on the rope to restore it, compared with the real reason that you're putting your hand in your pocket. The real reason you're putting your hand in your pocket is to drop off the evidence of the trick. You're dropping off the gimmick into your pocket. And gimmick is sometimes used in magic parlance to be the thing that causes the trick to happen. So you're dropping it off in your pocket, but you give a cover story. The real story is to get rid of the knot, to get rid of the evidence. And the fake story, the story you tell your audience, is that you're reaching in for woofle dust. Now, this is not an especially good example. And the reason why is because there's no woofle dust. It might be a good example for kids, but obviously you're not actually bringing out any real dust. You can see there's no dust there. It's just an excuse. But even though if you look at it objectively and as a magician, it's pretty obvious that there's no valid reason for reaching into your pocket to pull out some dust that's invisible that doesn't really exist. And therefore, it's not that great an excuse. It's not that great a cover story for why you're putting your hand in your pocket in the first place. I will tell you, I have done this trick numerous times and I've never had anybody in the audience, whether they're kids or grown-ups, ever stop and say, wait a second, there's no real woofle dust. You're just putting your hand in your pocket to get rid of something. Nobody ever thinks of that. Even an obviously made up excuse like woofle dust is enough to fool most people. And if you don't believe me, try it yourself. It is sometimes astonishing what I can get away with as a magician. Now this type of thing will happen in magic all the time. And the more reasonable your excuse is for why it is you're doing what you're doing, putting your hand in your pocket, the less likely it is the audience is going to realize the real reason you're putting your hand into your pocket. And another example of this might be if I'm doing a card trick and I end up having a spectator select a card and I manipulate the card deck and I do some slides and I get their card to come to the top of the deck and then I palm the card off in my hand. Well, at that point, I have their card in my hand. They still think it's mixed up in the deck over here in my left hand, but I have it palmed in my right hand. And of course, palming means it's in your palm and they can't see that you actually have it in your hand. It looks like your hand is empty, although you're only showing them the back of your hand, not the front of your hand, because if you show the front, they see the card palm there, right? But you take the card that's palmed in your hand and now you reach into your pocket and you pull out the card as if the card had been in your pocket. And you're just reaching into your pocket to pull out the card. That's another example of the same kind of thing. And in that case, it's a little bit more reasonable of an explanation because of course, if the card has magically appeared in your pocket, you're gonna have to reach in there to pull it out. It's not going for woofle dust, it's going to pull out the card and that's more reasonable. And so that has a better chance of fooling an audience that the reason for the action that you're telling to the audience seems a lot more believable and therefore, the audience is more likely to believe that that is the real reason you're reaching into your pocket when it is anything but the real reason you're reaching into your pocket. 
Okay, now I want to tell you about another magic trick. It's one of my favorite magic tricks, and it is this principle about giving a fake excuse for taking an action which covers the real reason that you're taking the action that I'm going to talk about in conjunction with the translation of the Book of Mormon. Now, to do this next trick, all you need are a few simple props. And you can do this at a restaurant. If you're seated at a table across from your audience member, you have to be across from them. You have to watch your angles, of course. But the effect is this. You get a salt shaker, right? Because those are commonly had at restaurants. You get a napkin, also commonly had at restaurants. And the only other thing you need is a dime. Now, I like to use a dime. A dime is the best thing to use because it is the thinnest American coin. You could use a nickel, you could use a quarter, you could even use a penny if you had to, but a dime is the best one because of how you're going to use it. And here's the effect, okay? What you do is you show that there is a dime and you hit the dime on the middle of the table and show that the dime is solid and that the table is solid and you put the dime flat on the table. You then tell the spectator that you're going to make this dime go physically right through the table. Now, let me tell you something else about magic. <laughs> you never tell an audience what it is you're going to do before you do it. Because if they know what you're going to do before you do it, the odds go way up that they're going to be able to figure out how it is that you do it. This is the same reason that you never, as a magician, perform the same trick twice for the same audience. It's the same principle. Once they've seen the trick, they know what you're going to do. If you do it again, the odds go way up. They're going to be able to figure out how to do it. So if they ask you to do the same trick twice, you say, ah, thanks, I appreciate it. But here, let me show you something else, right? So this dime is never going to go through the table. I'll tell you that up front. But it is miss direction. A lot of times people think that misdirection is pointing at something way over there and getting the audience to look over there while you're busy over here doing something else. That can be misdirection, but this is much more along the lines of what misdirection usually looks like in a magic trick. And once again, this misdirection, the woofle dust in the cut and restored rope trick out of the pocket, that's misdirection. I'm reaching into my pocket to get woofle dust. Well, that's what you're saying, but no, you're not. You're dropping off the evidence of how you did the trick. That's misdirection. So you take the dime, you lay it flat on the table, and now you say, I'm going to make it go through the table, right? But you say, I can't do it right in front of you. You can't actually see it happen. Okay, now let me stop here for a second. If a magician could really do magic, then they wouldn't need all of these props. Every magician knows this. I think most audience members probably know about it if they think about it for two seconds. If a magician could really do magic, he wouldn't need props. If I could really make this dime go through the table, I wouldn't need to cover it with a salt shaker. I wouldn't need to put a salt shaker on top of it to keep the audience member from actually seeing it happen. And then I say, that's not enough because not only is the salt shaker on top of the dime going to hide the effect, I'm also going to take a napkin and I'm going to put the napkin over the salt shaker and I'm going to bring the napkin down over the salt shaker and I'm going to, with my left hand, hold the napkin with the salt shaker inside of it. And by doing that tightly enough, I can lift up the napkin and the salt shaker at the same time, which I do to show that the dime is still there. I then place the salt shaker, still covered by the napkin, once again over the dime in the middle of the table and I move my hand over it and I tap the top of the salt shaker that's in the napkin and I say the dime has gone through the table. I then lift it up and no, the dime has not gone through the table. It's still there. I express some surprise that it didn't work. I put the napkin and the salt shaker over the dime again. I go through the same business. I tap the top of the salt shaker and announce that the dime has gone through the table. I lift it up. It hasn't gone through the table. I pick that dime up and I look at it with disbelief because this dime is not cooperating. I put the dime back on the middle of the table. I put the salt shaker still inside the napkin, still held in my left hand 
on top of the dime again. I circle my hand over the top and now I pop down on top of the salt shaker and lo and behold, the salt shaker is gone and the napkin goes flat on the table. I pick up the napkin and the salt shaker is gone, but the dime is still there. You see, the dime was never going to go through the table. It was the salt shaker that was going to go through the table. That's the surprise. That's the misdirection. I then reach under the table in the middle and I give a yank and I pull the salt shaker through the bottom of the table and I bring it up to show the spectator. And now everything can be examined, the salt shaker, the dime, and the napkin. There's nothing there that I need to get rid of. There's no need for woofle dust in this particular case. But the key principle here is that this trick was never about the dime. It was always about the salt shaker. But the reason I tell everybody throughout the trick that it's about the dime is so that they won't be thinking about the salt shaker because if they were thinking about the salt shaker, they are much more likely to see how it is that I end up with the salt shaker disappearing and then able to pull it out from the bottom of the table. Of course, they don't see me pull it out from the bottom of the table. That's left to their imagination. But I do bring it out from the bottom of the table and put it on top of the table at the end of the trick. So how does this principle have anything to do with the manner in which Joseph Smith dictated the Book of Mormon. Well, I did a couple of podcasts not too long ago about all the witness statements related to the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's use of the seer stone. And in that, I focused on the different and sometimes contradictory statements as to what it was that Joseph Smith used to translate. Some witnesses say a seer stone, some say interpreters, and some say he used spectacles i.e. the two clear stones wrapped in a silver figure eight, the spectacle. So there's three different explanations or three different descriptions of what it was that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon. The one thing that's consistent is that Joseph Smith used a hat. And this hat was a top hat, and it wasn't a black top hat, it was a white top hat. And what Joseph Smith would do is he would take either the seer stone or he would take either the interpreters, whatever that meant, or he would take these spectacles and he would always place them into the hat. And then he would place his face over the hat and he would dictate from what he saw on the seer stone, from what he saw on the spectacles, or from what he saw on the interpreters. And it came to me that really, from a magician's point of view, I was totally falling for it. If this is a magic trick, what Joseph Smith as a magician would want me to do is to focus on what he put into the hat. It would be the same as if in this example that I gave of the salt shaker going through the table, if I have people focusing on whether I use a dime or whether I use a quarter or whether I use a nickel or whether I use a penny, then I've got people focusing on the wrong thing. And that's the whole intent. I've got them focusing on the coin so that they won't notice the real trick that's going on with the salt shaker. In the same way, what I think is going on here, and I can't prove this, but based upon my experience as a magician, what Joseph Smith is doing is he's doing the same kind of trick because the translation has nothing to do with the stone. It has nothing to do with the interpreters. It has nothing to do with the spectacles. Let's say for a minute that at different times, Joseph Smith did use different things that he put into the hat. That should key us in right there that it has nothing to do with what he's putting into the hat. What it has to do with is not what he's putting into the hat. It has to do with the hat itself because the hat is the common feature. Different witnesses say he put different things in the hat, but all of the witnesses agree that he used a hat in the translation process. Let me read to you from an article that's titled The Coming Forth of the Book of Mormon. It was printed in a volume called A Marvelous Work in a Wonder, and the article's title is First-Hand Witness Accounts of the Translation Process. It's written by Garrett J. Dirkmatt and Michael Hubbard McKay. And they've gone through a lot of the sources, and they've written a scholarly article about the subject, and I want to just read one particular paragraph in their article. 
And this is in the section of their article titled, Use of a Hat to Block Ambient Light. Because remember, that's what Joseph Smith tells everybody. He has to put the stone in the hat, and then he has to put his face over the hat. Why? To block the ambient light, so that he can see in the darkness the divine glow, or whatever it is that's happening, that produces the text of the Book of Mormon that he can dictate off to his scribe. From a magician's point of view, that is the fake excuse. It has nothing to do with putting his face over the hat so that he can see what's on the stone. It has to do with his putting his face over the hat for another reason. Let me be clear. Saying that putting the stone in the hat or the interpreters or whatever it is he's putting in the hat so he can put his face over the hat so he can see what's written on it, that's the fake excuse. That's me putting my hand in my pocket to get the woofle dust out, right? That's the explanation I'm giving to the audience so they won't catch on to what it is I'm really doing. What I'm really doing is putting the evidence, the cut knot, in my pocket so it can't be found, but the fake excuse is to bring forth the woofle dust to sprinkle over the rope and make the magic happen. Well, in the same way, I think Joseph Smith is giving this fake excuse to his audience about putting the stone in his hat and putting his face over the hat to cover what it is that he's really doing. And what it is that he's really doing has to do with the hat itself. That's why it doesn't seem to make that much difference what it is he puts in the hat, but the thing that makes the difference is that he has a reason to put his face over the hat. Taking it one step further, if Joseph Smith just puts his face over a hat and dictates, people are going to be wondering, what is it that you're looking at in that hat that's allowing you to dictate the text of the Book of Mormon? But if he puts the stone in the hat and says that it's the stone that he's dictating off of, then everybody's going to think, oh, he's using the stone. They're not going to think there's something else in the hat that he's using to dictate. And as crazy as this excuse sounds, it seems to have fooled pretty much everybody. Up to and including today when it continues to fool even seasoned academics who are Mormon historians. Which brings us once again to that passage from that scholarly paper that I mentioned before and which I'm going to get to now. Here's this paragraph from this article. Significantly, the use of a hat appears in important witness statements relating to translation in Harmony, where it's mentioned by Emma Smith and Martin Harris, as well as in Fayette, New York, where it's mentioned by David Whitmer and Elizabeth Whitmer Cowdery. In fact, before the printing of the Book of Mormon had even begun, in the earliest known account of the translation of the plates, the spectacles were described as being used in conjunction with a hat. The hat is the common theme, and therefore, the hat is what is essential for Joseph Smith in order to perform the trick of dictating the text of the Book of Mormon. It has nothing to do with the stone. It has everything to do with the hat. That last bit was my parenthetical comment. The article goes on. The mention of the hat Joseph used often causes modern interpreters to relate the translation with magic. Now, it's not clear from here whether he's talking about magic in terms of supernatural magic or magic in terms of magic tricks. Yet the hat itself is as insignificant to the process as the table Oliver Cowdery used to write on during the translation. That's what these two scholars say. The hat itself is as insignificant in the process of translation as the table that Oliver Cowdery used to write on. 
These guys are totally falling for it. The hat is the critical point. It's not insignificant. Their final line in this paragraph is, it was simply a tool. The hat is simply a tool, see, that Joseph apparently used to block out all extraneous light. Well, they're totally falling for it. The hat is not the tool to block out extraneous light. That's the fake story that Joseph is giving to the audience and that these two scholars are buying hook, line, and sinker. Joseph is doing a great job. His audience is totally going with his fake explanation. But the fake explanation is, I've got to have a hat and put the seer stone in it and put my face over it so it can block out the extraneous light so then I can read what's on the stone. But no, Joseph Smith is not reading anything on the stone. The stone is the fake excuse. The stone is the woofle dust in the hat. What Joseph Smith is really doing is facilitated by his putting his face over the top of the hat. Now, I can't tell you exactly what he's doing, but let me give you another couple of insights. First off, this hat is a top hat, so it has depth to it. Second off, it is not a black top hat. It is a white top hat. If there is a black top hat and you put your face over it, it's going to look pretty dark. There might be some light that comes in around your face, like your cheeks or your eye sockets, places where your face does not completely cover the hat. But it's going to be pretty dark in a black top hat. In a white top hat, however, the material that the hat is made out of is not opaque. It is translucent. It will allow in ambient light through the sides. And in fact, Bill Real has a replica of the same sort of white top hat or stovepipe hat that Joseph Smith has described as using in his translation of the Book of Mormon. And Bill Real has this top hat down at the pawn shop where he works. He also has a replica of the same kind of seer stone that Joseph Smith used. And once when he was on his podcast, Bill Real was goofing around and he was taking the top hat and he was taking a seer stone and he was putting a seer stone in the hat and putting his face over the hat to see if he could actually see anything. And I remember Bill Real saying, somewhat surprised, hey, I can see in here because light comes in through the sides of the white top hat. So that's a huge element to this story. If you're looking at the top hat from the outside, like where a witness or a scribe would be looking at it from, it looks opaque. You can't see into it, but if you put your face over it, the white material of the top hat allows ambient light to come in. So even though it's dim inside, you can see to be able to read. And when I say read here, I mean read in the normal way. There is enough light coming in through the sides of the white top hat to be able to read something that is written on, I don't know, say, paper. It is not the black space that Joseph Smith claimed that he had to put the stone in so that the stone could glow in the darkness and Joseph Smith could read in that glow from the stone the translation of the Book of Mormon. That is not what it actually looked like when he stuck his face in the hat. Once again, that's the woofle dust. Okay, now number two, let's talk about top hats. And let's talk specifically about the classic top hat magic trick of producing a rabbit from a hat. I hope I'm not revealing too much when I kind of tell you the classic way of producing a rabbit from your hat. What it is is that the magician has a black top hat and he shows it to the audience and the hat is empty. Or at least the hat appears empty. And here's the important part. When you've got a black top hat, because the hat itself is somewhat deep, you can put a false bottom in the hat, you can have a piece of black material that is situated maybe three quarters or two thirds of the way into the hat. Of course, on the other side of the black material and between that black material and the top of the hat is actually the rabbit. The rabbit is in the hat the whole time. But because of the black material you've placed in there and because of the depth of the hat, you can show the audience what appears to be an empty hat when really all they're seeing is two thirds of the interior of the hat 
and the black material, which they take to be the entire interior of the hat that they're seeing. And the black material they're actually seeing, they think is the interior top of the hat, when actually it's not. That's the trick. So having now shown the audience that this top hat is empty, the magician can then take the top hat, place it back on the table, pronounce whatever magic words he needs to pronounce, reach his hand into the hat, reach around the black material, grab the rabbit by the ears, and pull it out of the hat. And lo and behold, one of the classic magic tricks of all time, the magician has produced a rabbit from an empty top hat. So once again, I'm not saying that I know everything about how Joseph Smith performed this magic trick of dictating a Book of Mormon with his face in a hat. All I'm saying is that he's got a white top hat, which is a deep top hat, which allows light in through the sides, and which can have another piece of white material sewed into the hat part way down and underneath that white material instead of a rabbit could be concealed manuscript notes or whatever it is he needs to read off of when he has his face over the hat and is dictating the text of the Book of Mormon. And of course, this brings to mind images of old-time politicians wearing stovepipe hats who get up on a platform. Let's say it's Abraham Lincoln getting up on a platform, wearing his big stovepipe hat, and then taking off his stovepipe hat, reaching into it, pulling out his speech, putting his stovepipe hat back on his head, and now reading his speech to the audience. The speech that is written on paper and the speech that he just got done pulling out of his stovepipe hat. Well, in the same way, Abraham Lincoln could get up there, be in front of his audience, ready to give a speech, pull off his stovepipe hat, and look into his stovepipe hat, and read the text of his speech off the paper while it's still at the bottom of his hat. And if you look at it in this way, that sounds an awful lot like what the witnesses describe Joseph Smith is doing when he was dictating the Book of Mormon. Remember, once again, it's not about the stone, it's about the hat. So the next question is, how could Joseph Smith have enough paper in his hat to continue to dictate for hours on end? Well, the answer is he didn't. He had to have breaks so that he could rearrange the papers or put new papers in his top hat to continue to dictate from. Obviously, he's not going to tell the people who are around that he's taking a break so he can do that. Instead, he comes up with other excuses. These are the fake excuses, remember? We know that he took some breaks with Martin Harris so they could go exercise and throw rocks down by the river. You remember that story. That's one reason that Joseph Smith gave for taking a break. Another reason he gave for taking a break and not being able to dictate was because he had said some unkind words or there had been some kind of argument he'd had with Emma and he had to stop dictating. He had to go up there. He had to make things right with her and then he could come back and he could start dictating again. Do not forget what Emma Smith said was that when they would take breaks from dictation, they would come back and Joseph Smith would put his face over the hat and he would immediately pick up the dictation exactly where he had left off without having any part of the Book of Mormon read back to him so he could refresh his memory. Now this is either a huge miracle or Joseph Smith has a fantastic memory or he's just reading something that's written on paper at the bottom of the hat. And this is another thing about magic theory. A lot of times if people see some kind of a magic trick and they're not a magician, they'll start coming up with all kinds of very wild and complicated ideas and theories as to how the trick is done. That's usually going down a rabbit hole because the common understanding among magicians is that usually the secret to a magic trick is pretty simple. It's not going to be super complicated. A super complicated method of performing a trick is not going to be very useful for a magician. It's got too many things that can go wrong. It's usually going to be the simple explanation that's going to be the correct explanation. It's like the magician's version of Occam's razor. So as between Joseph Smith reading off a glowing stone or Joseph Smith having an incredible memory 
or Joseph Smith reading off some paper he had hidden at the bottom of the hat and therefore he was able to pick up right where he left off, you can figure out for yourself which of those three explanations is the most simple method. And I actually did this exact sort of thing earlier on in this podcast. Remember when it was, I was trying to find the quotes from the Book of Mormon Witnesses. They ended up being from Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer regarding what would happen if they tried to translate themselves, that they would be struck dead. And I couldn't find them. So I had to take a break. I had to go out for a while. I had to walk around. I had to throw some rocks in the river. I had to apologize to somebody. But when I came back, I had those quotes at hand and I could commence where I had left off with those quotes. All I had to do was substitute the notes in the bottom of the hat, and I was ready to go. And now perhaps the last question I want to address in this discussion is this question. How does Joseph Smith keep his audience from catching on? Number one, by making the focus of the translation, not the hat, which is the trick, but the seer stone, which is not the trick. And second off, he wants to make sure that nobody tries to duplicate this themselves by putting the rock in the hat and then putting their face over the hat and trying to dictate. He wants to keep people away from the hat and away especially from the interior of the hat. And so therefore, we have the warnings like the one we read in Mosiah chapter 8 and which were also communicated to Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris that no man can look in these interpreters except he be commanded lest he should look for that which he ought not and he should perish. So there's a death penalty associated with anybody who tries to do this trick, because if they try to do this trick the same way that Joseph Smith did it, they might find out exactly how it is that he did it. And whoosh, the magic would be all gone. Okay, so that's all I have to say about this subject tonight. Once again, me, Radio Free Mormon, bringing my experience as a magician and looking at the translation process of the Book of Mormon as a magic trick. And I will tell you that when I look at this translation process as a magician, all of a sudden I can see a lot of things that I wouldn't necessarily see if I weren't looking at it as a magician. For instance, as a historian, and as historians do, they look at all the different accounts and they try and figure out, okay, did Joseph Smith use a seer stone? Did he use the interpreters? Did he use the spectacles? How did he use them? When did he use them? Which time did he use what? And we get caught up in this entirely irrelevant discussion because we think that the translation is being done by the seer stone, but it's not. That's the fake excuse. The translation is being done in the hat. That's where the magic happens. The seer stone has nothing to do with it. The interpreters have nothing to do with it, and the spectacles have nothing to do with it. It's not about the seer stone. It's about the hat. It's always been about the hat. But as I say, to the extent that Joseph Smith has historians today focusing on his fake excuse for the translation of the Book of Mormon and has them focusing on the seer stone, the interpreters, or the spectacles, he would have to be smiling to see his magic trick continuing to play out and his misdirection continuing to be so successful even down unto the present day, even down to very educated and intelligent people who are looking at the witness statements. But they're missing the trick because they're looking at it as a historian instead of as a magician. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.